Well, good morning, Inglewood family. It's good to be with you again and to see you this great Sunday. I'm glad to be uh, back in the house of the Lord, and I hope that you are too. I was so encouraged uh, this week uh, just by thoughts and comments, not personal to me as much as it was uh, complimenting and praising God uh, for all that He is doing, uh, finding our hope in Him, uh, being encouraged by uh, the things that He's saying and the things that He wants us to know and do. And I'm encouraged to be a part of that journey and this journey uh, with you as we walk through this season of transition. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. As you're turning there, i share with you a, a somewhat uh, humorous story of a young man who was uh, one day walking along the beach. And um, as he was kicking through the sand, he all of a sudden kicked something and began to dig up under there because it was it's kind of sizable but movable. And so as he did, he picked up what would have been an old relic or uh, an unpolished kind of lamp. And so uh, he began to rub that lamp. And like all the different stories you've heard uh, for all these many years of your life, you recognize what happened next was out popped a genie. And uh, as the genie popped out, this young man in particular was excited because he had actually thought, man, if this is ever true, if a genie would ever come out of a a, a bottle or a lamp, I know it's going to happen to me. I just sense it. So when this happened to him, he uh, and, and saw the genie, all of a sudden he was excited because he already had his three wishes picked out. He knew what he was going to ask for. So the genie says, your wish is my command. He said, well, I've got the, the wishes, genie. Here they are. The first one is, I want a billion dollars. I want a billion dollars. And so the genie said, if that's what you want, he snapped his fingers, blinked his eyes, lightning flashed across the sky, and boom, here was a deposit slip for a Swiss bank account with a balance of a billion dollars. Now, he said, well, what's your second wish? He said, I know what it's going to be. Uh, I wish for a shiny, bright red, brand new sports car. The genie snapped his fingers, lightning flashed across the sky, and boom, there he was right beside him, a shiny, brand new red sports car. And he said, well, what would your third wish be? Make it a good one. You've only got one left. And he said, okay, you know, I've never really been sociable. Uh, you know, making friends and being, you know, somebody that people wanted to be around has always been hard for me. So I've got my third wish. It's a little bit different. I'd like you to make me sweet and irresistible. And so the genie said, okay. And he snapped his fingers and blinked his eyes, lightning flashed across the sky and boom, he became a box of chocolates. (laughs) Now I know this could be welcome to dad humor 101. uh, And that's kind of somewhat of a, a humorous joke of a different kind, but It's meant to illustrate a point. And here's the thing. While most of us would not describe prayer in that way, like a genie in a bottle, the truth is that illustration describes how we practice prayer. It describes our approach to prayer. Think about it. Many times we're approaching prayer as that which in a time of kind of expectation, a wish with an expectation. Or maybe we come to God in prayer during a season of desperation, a season where we are going through trials and and difficulty, and it shouldn't be unexpected. It's not unusual or certainly not wrong to have a a stronger disposition towards prayer in times like those, or even in a time of transition. That would be natural and right, but friend, that's not how God desires prayer to be. God desires prayer for, for us as believers to be as natural as breathing, breathing itself. Prayer is the spiritual oxygen that gives us life. But so many times we forfeit the privilege of prayer. 
And it's not because, you know, the, the, the old excuses that we would maybe lean on of, well, I don't have enough time or I don't know how or I, I, I'm just uncomfortable with what to say. Many times it actually comes down to the fact of what do you believe about prayer? What do you actually believe about prayer? I mean, think of these questions. What is prayer? How does prayer work? And what difference does prayer actually make? I mean, you could think about it in light of some of the prayers you've prayed that maybe you think have gone unanswered over the years. Maybe you could think about it in light of the, the things that you prayed for and then you got something completely different. Maybe you can think of it of, uh, as a prayer that you prayed and you got something far better than what you prayed for. And it makes you scratch your head. What is prayer? How does it work? And what difference does it really make? Well, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul actually pins for us a prayer for the church at Ephesus. He says, this is how I'm praying for you. And in doing so, he models for us what prayer can look like, what it should sound like, certainly what it reads like, but he doesn't just give us an example to follow. He actually gives us understanding as to those three questions. He answers those three questions for us. What is prayer? How does it work? And what difference does it make? So if you found your place there in Ephesians chapter 3, let's read God's word together and hear how God answers those questions. Beginning in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3, the Bible says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you now in prayer, believing that you hear us and asking now, even in these moments, that you would meet with us and speak to us. Father, by your word, give us understanding as to the nature of prayer. Lord, and give us a desire then as a result to pray. Speak to us now by your word through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I simply want to kind of put a big umbrella over these three questions to answer this overarching question, what happens when you pray? What happens when you pray? As we walk through this passage, we're going to see three truths that kind of answer these uh, questions together and then give us some understanding as to how we can then pray. The first truth I want you to see in this passage is that when we pray, we're talking to the God who listens to us. When we pray, we're talking to the God who listens to us. Now, if I had asked before we even started this conversation this morning, hey, define or describe prayer, you probably would have answered with something similar to this first point. Prayer is simply talking to God. Maybe that's how you were taught even as a child how to pray. Well, you just talk to God like you're talking to another person. And that's right. And that's well-meaning. And it's good. And it actually does describe the talking element to it. But when we say we're talking to God, our emphasis usually falls on the talking part rather than who we're talking to. We're talking to God. Who is this God? 
How does this God work? And what assurance do we have that when we're talking to God, then we'll actually make a difference? Well, as Paul describes it here, he says that we're talking to the God who listens to us. And when we're talking to God, we have to understand how we should approach him. So pick up here in verse 14, and let's understand a little bit more about our posture in prayer and the Father who we're praying to, because when we pray, we're talking to the God who listens to us. Look there at verse 14. The Bible says, for this reason. Now, we can pause there, and this is going to be a phrase that includes everything that he's talked about before. In other words, he is loading the ship with all the cargo from chapters 1, 2, and 3. Everything he said before about our salvation, who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, all of these things are kind of imported there. Because of those truths, Paul's then going to pray this way. But he's not just talking about for this reason, what he's discussed. It's for this reason and what I'm going to actually uh, intercede for you on behalf, on your behalf to God. So for this reason, I'm praying based on this and for this. For this reason, watch this, I bow my knees before the Father. This is how Paul characterizes our posture in prayer. Think about this. Whether Paul was actually physically, as he's in a jail cell writing this letter, on his knees saying, I'm bowing my knees before you, or he's describing the posture of his heart, both have the same consequence for us. This describes the posture for which and by which we should pray. When we pray, we're talking to God. What is bowing your knees? What, what does that actually communicate? Well, there's several things it talks about for our, or tells us about our posture in prayer. First, when we pray, we should pray from a posture of reverence. We should pray from a posture of reverence. To bow your knees before somebody speaks to their prestige, their honor, right? That you're giving them honor. Think of uh, walking into a throne room, if you will, and as you see the king seated on his throne, what would be the natural inclination? I'm going to bow before the king. I'm going to pay honor and homage to the king. And when we pray, that's what we're doing. We're giving God reverence. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't talk to God as your friend, but God is much more than your friend. This is the God of the universe. The God in all of his sovereignty and majesty is reigning and ruling over all of creation. This is God Almighty, the Lord. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, he cried out, woe is me, I am undone, I am ruined. In bowing before God, it speaks to his position, and it should be from a posture of reverence. Think about how the psalmist describes it in Psalm chapter 95 when it speaks of God's greatness as our king. He says, the Lord our God is a great God and a great king above all gods. And as he describes his greatness there, he says, the depths of the earth are in his hand and the peaks of the mountain are his as well. His, uh, the seas are in his hands because he made them, and the dry ground is his because he formed them. Then what is our response? He says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker. We come to prayer, to, to God in prayer, we must come with a posture of reverence, praising him, honoring him, celebrating him, esteeming him. This is the posture of bowing our knees. But it's not just a posture of reverence. We should also come with a posture of obedience. Posture of obedience. You see, when you bow before the king, you're not just giving him honor. You're in deferring to him. It's in deference. It's to say, God, you are God and I'm not. And I am now surrendering and submitting to you, to your authority, to your rule and your reign over me. 
I'm in subjection to you. I'm submitted to you. I'm surrendering to you. I belong to you. So when we pray, we're praying not just with a posture of reverence, but a posture of obedience. Isn't this what Jesus did in the garden the night he was betrayed? Father, not my will, but your will be done. Isn't this what Jesus did when he uh, prayed for us or taught us how to pray? That we should pray, your will in heaven be done here on earth. It's God's will. We're submitting to him. And it's a commitment to obey. God, whatever you say, I surrender all. I belong to you. So when we pray and you think, well, I'm asking for this, you're submitting yourself to his will, not yours. So when we pray, we pray with a posture of reverence. We pray with, pray with a posture of obedience. But it also means that we should pray with a posture of dependence. Dependence. Think about, again, the natural consequence of this. I come before God. I bow before the king who's on his throne. I submit myself and surrender myself to him. I may, in fact, phrase it this way. God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whenever you want me to go, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it, wherever you want me to do it, and however you want me to do it, yes is my answer. God, I'm submitting to myself to you. But the moment you do that, you're going to realize, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And so bowing our knees before the Father not only says, God, you're God and I'm not. It not only says, I'm willing to do whatever you say. It says, God, as I say yes to do to you, I need your help. But here's the good news. God promises to give us everything we need to accomplish his will. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. So watch this. So that you would have all sufficiency at all times, with all things, so that you may abound in every good work. Whatever God asks you to do, he will equip you to do it. So when we pray, we're praying with a posture of reverence and obedience and dependence. But there's one final area of bowing our knees before him that it tells us about our posture. We should also pray with a posture of confidence. Of confidence. Not in us, but in him. Not in what we can do, but what he's already done. You see, the Bible tells us that we even have access to God, not because we warrant it, not because uh, that we can deserve it, but that he has granted us access. And how has he done that? Through Jesus himself. The Bible says that Jesus is the high priest who opens the way that therefore we can come to God and enter into his presence. And in Hebrews chapter 4, 16, it says that uh, because we have such a great high priest, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. So they can receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We should pray from a posture of confidence. God, I'm coming to you with complete confidence in who you are, what you can do, and what you've already done for me. I trust you because of what Jesus has already done for me. Therefore, I can enter into your presence and trust that you'll hear me. Well, that brings us to the next part of kind of this posture of prayer. You see, it's not just about our posture. It's about our Father. It's about who we're praying to. So look what he says in, in, in verse 14 and now into verse 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he then describes the Father from whom, in verse 15, every family in, in heaven and on earth derives its name. If you back up into chapter 3, you'll actually see that, that, uh, that God uh, is the creator of all things in verse 9. 
And if you skip down to chapter 4, verse 6, you'll also see God, uh, God spoken of this way. Chapter 4, verse 6, look at this with me. It says, For there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is speaking of God as the Father of all creation. And listen, because He created it with care, it also means that He still cares about it. Our Father takes care of His creation. We have this assurance. He's all for all creation, all people of all kinds from everywhere. He cares about his creation. In other words, Jesus said it this way when um, uh, and he was describing this in Matthew chapter 5. God causes the rain to fall on the just and unjust. God causes the sun to shine on the just and unjust. There is some common grace that is extended to all of creation that everybody is living and breathing and has their, their moving all about because of God's kindness to all of his creation. But it's not just that we're appealing to him as the father of all creation. You see, our father cares for his creation, but even more importantly, notice he says, I bow my knees before the father. It's our father. God cares for his creation, but our father also cares for his children. He takes care of his children. Jesus used this analogy in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, If you can look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and see that your father cares for them, how much more will your heavenly father care for you? The Bible says that we, when we trust Jesus Christ, we're adopted into God's family. We become his children. We move out of the category of being creation and become his child. John 1.12, it says, for as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become God's children. In 1 John 3, it says, see what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. You see, when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, God adopts you into his family. God gives you the relationship with him to say, I know the King. I can therefore, in prayer, come to him and appeal to him, not just as the King, but as my heavenly father which is also how jesus taught us to pray our father who is in heaven hallowed be your name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven you see it's all about our posture and our father when we pray we're talking to the god who listens to us that brings us to a point of question personal question do you know him as your father have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Maybe in your own prayer life you can just see that, you know, I, I, I sense a distance. I, I, I mean, I believe that God is real, but I don't sense the personal relationship in talking to Him. That can actually be an indication that you don't have a personal relationship. There's lots of people who pray to a lot of things they call God. There's a lot of people who want to appeal to the God. But if you don't have a relationship to Him, you can't pray in the way Paul's describing it here in a way that you could expect an answer, in a way that assures you that he hears you. Oh no, do you have a relationship with God? You say, well, if I'm not sure, what do I do? Here's what you have to understand, that God loved you so much, he wanted that relationship with you. But your sin breaks the relationship. And when your sin breaks that relationship, God had to do something to mend it, to fix it. He had to punish that sin one way or the other. But instead of punishing you, he offers to punish Jesus instead. And that's what he did. He sent Jesus to die in your place. You deserve that death, but he punished Jesus in your place. Jesus is your substitute. And if you place your faith in him as your substitute, the Bible says he reconciles us or gives us peace with God. We now have that relationship restored. 
And when we do, the Bible says he adopts you into his family. Now you're not just part of his creation. You're one of his children. Friend, if you don't have that relationship or you're just uncertain at the end of the service today, I want to talk with you about that. We'll be here to share with you about that so you can know for certain that you have a relationship with God. But if you answer that question in the positive, yes, I have a relationship with God. How do you approach him? How do you approach him? Is it somewhat cavalier or comfortable for you? Or do you keep within your prayers reverence for God? It doesn't mean that you pray with formality. It doesn't mean that you use big or fancy words. It simply means that you bow the knee of your heart. God, you are God, and I am not. Do you pray with a sense of obedience, that you're genuinely ready to do whatever, whenever, however he tells you to do? God, I'll do it. I'll do it. Or do you reserve the right to refuse some things or to modify his commands? Well, I'll do it when it's comfortable or convenient. I mean, God may be actually calling you to be and to get, surrender your life to full-time missions or ministry. God may be calling you to, to give more or to serve more or to share your faith with your neighbor or a coworker. God may be calling you to do something uh, that you know he's, he's calling you to that and you want to take a partial step of obedience. Friend, a partial step, partial obedience is disobedience. When we pray, we should pray with a posture of obedience and dependence. You know, sometimes when we pray, we actually pray as though we just want God to endorse or affirm our decision. God, would you authorize me to do what I'm already committed to do? I'm going to do this one way or the other, but I, I'd sure like to have your endorsement on it. That's how we pray. God, just authorize or affirm what I've already decided, what I'm already going to do. But to pray with dependence says, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. I can't manufacture the response. I can't manipulate the circumstances. I can't ultimately accomplish it. I need your help. I need your help. And I'm willing to wait on you. I'm willing to trust you. And I'm willing to do it your way. Friends, that's what dependence is. When we do so, when we do all these things, we can pray with confidence. Because of what he's already done, we can trust that he hears our prayer. And when we pray, we're talking to the God who listens to us. That's the first truth of this passage, but the next truth, the second truth I want you to see, not only are we, when we pray, are we talking to the God who listens to us, when we pray, we're trusting the God who loves us. We're trusting the God who loves us. You know, you can't untangle faith from prayer. Prayer is actually the expression of our faith. In fact, you could actually measure in your own life how much you believe, how much you trust God by how much you pray. Because when you pray, you're actually committing yourself to trust the Lord. You're trusting God to provide for you. You're trusting God to strengthen you. You're trusting God to help you. You're trusting God, not yourself. Prayer and faith go together. And all throughout this passage, you actually see it, although it's easy for us to miss. So let me show you where you see faith expressed in Paul's prayer over and over. Uh, in verse 16, now he's praying, he's appealing to the Father, bowing his knees. But in verse 16, that according to to the riches of his glory, he may, that he may grant you to be strengthened. That word may, it's just a little word in our Bible, but it's important because it says, God, it's according to your will and your power and your ability. I, I'm not praying with presumption. I actually am asking. You know what it's like if you're a parent uh, for a, a child to inform you of what they're doing. And you're like, um, don't you mean to put that in the form of a question? Can I go to this friend's house? Can I go do this? May I borrow the car? May I have some money? May I? You're asking, right? 
Well, this is what the Bible says. We're, we're trusting God. We're appealing to God. And God, it's really up to you. May I, that you may be strengthened. But this isn't the only place he says it. Look down uh, in the next verse, in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Look at the next verse. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. That you may. Look down in the next verse, in verse 19. So that you would have knowledge of the love of, uh, love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You hear the faith that's embedded in that? He's appealing. God, may you do this. Would you do this? Will you do this? I'm trusting you. I'm not presuming anything. God, you're in charge. You're in control. So faith and trust is embedded in our prayer. So when we pray, we're actually trusting God. But you may say, well, I'm not sure I can trust God. Oh, no, you're trusting the God who loves us. Here's what God does when you actually pray. Here's how prayer actually works. What God does is he opens and makes available to you all of who he is and all that he has. Who he is and what he has. That's what he opens. He makes access to you. He gives you access to his attributes. So if you fill in the blank that God is holy, God is just, God is right, God is merciful, God is gracious, God is kind, God is loving, God is like all of these things, everything that you put as the attribute of what the Bible reveals God to be, who and how God is, is now made available to you. And you're simply accessing those truths about who and how God is to work according to or in your life, the circumstances and the needs that God knows are there. So God is granting you access to his attributes, all that he has. So when we pray, what actually attributes does he give us access to. He focuses on three here, although it's far more. Notice the three that he describes here. When we pray, we have access to God's incomparable power. Is there anything that can compare with the power of God? The incomparable power of God. Look at how he describes it there in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory. Now just pause there. He's going to pray according to the riches of God's glory. This is that which can't be exhausted. A bank account that can't be spent, right? Power that cannot dwindle. You know what it's like to look at your phone and see the battery on your phone continuing to go down until it gets into the yellow, until it gets into the red. When it comes to God's power, he's praying God's power according to the riches of his glory, which cannot be exhausted. It cannot be spent. So according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you, that's God giving it to you, right? Not you mustering it yourself to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. As he describes this power of God uh, in the first prayer uh, in Ephesians, if you actually rewind into chapter one, Paul prayed for them there as well. And he prayed that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would know what is the inheritance of their, the hope of their calling, the inheritance of the saints. And watch this, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, isn't it enough to just say it's God's power? I mean, that's the power that's like far above everything else. No, no, but he says that it's great power. But then he puts another superlative on it and says it's the immeasurable greatness of his power. Man, it's the incomparable power of God. But notice what he says about the power because when we hear power, you know what we think about? Mountains moving, earthquakes you know, shaking. We, we think God performing miracles or doing great things. And it's true, God can do those according to his great power. But watch what he says, according to his power, that he would grant you strength in your inner being. Your inner being. If you live for any amount of time, you realize that physical strength is important. But spiritual strength is far more important. 
Think about what he describes as your inner being. I'll just give you a few things that that includes. That includes your heart. In other words, your passions, your desires. God, I need strength to give me the desires, the passions that you have, to share those things. God, I I desire things that are not of you. Would you, in my inner being, strengthen me to desire the things you desire? God, I'm passionate about things that are worldly, but I need passionate about things that are godly. God, would you strengthen my heart? God, I, I love the things you love. I just don't love them with my whole heart. God, would you strengthen my inner being? God strengthens your inner being. He strengthens your heart, your passions, your desires. But it's not just your heart. It's also your inner being includes your mind. God, I, I need your, your help. My mind races out of control. You see, your mind includes and, and, and controls your, your emotions. And there can be things like anxiety or frustration. Hey, even yesterday, I was at a moment where I looked at our third child and I said, sweetie, I'm really frustrated right now. And these are the circumstances why. And this is what's happened. This, I'm really, I'm almost bordering on anger. I'm really frustrated. And in that moment, you know what I was trying to tell her? At the same time, I was telling God, God, I need your help. I was driving. I said, Lord, I, I, I can't control my emotions. I'm really frustrated. You, you, can you guys not relate? Or y'all, y'all, y'all are too spiritual for that. Oh, God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on my journey with me. Here, here's it. We need strength that exceeds our own. We need help with our inner being, our mind. Listen, it's not always frustration or anxiety. Sometimes it's discouragement. Your sadness. You're overwhelmed with discouragement. God, I need strength in my inner being. Sometimes it's sorrow or grief, the loss over a loved one or some other tragedy in your life or someone else you know. God, I need strength in my inner being. I just can't make it through. You know what it's like to need strength in your inner being. You have access to the incomparable power of God, not only in your heart and your mind, but also in your will. In your will. You see, your inner being includes the decision-making ability. I need resolve. I need commitment. I need the discipline to say yes to this or no to that. I need the ability, your strength in my inner being. Friends, that's strength. That's incomparable power in our inner being. We have access to that. How? Through prayer. I'm praying that God would strengthen you according to the riches of his glory. Grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit that dwells within us in your inner being. But it's not just our access to his incomparable power. We also have access to his indwelling presence, his indwelling presence. He mentions there through the spirit who lives within us. Now in verse uh, 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This isn't simply the expression of asking Jesus into your hearts. What he's describing here is that you give Jesus residence in every area of your heart, that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. This is speaking of what Jesus described in, Matthew, in uh, excuse me, John 15 when he said, Listen, if my words abide in you, I will abide in you. I will make my home with you. In John 17, he prayed for us in that same way. We're asking Jesus not just to come live in our living room, but to live in our bedrooms, in our bathrooms, in our guest rooms, in every room of our house, every category of your life. That Christ may dwell in your heart, that you would give him free reign. And here's the assurance. You don't have to be threatened by that. You can be comforted by that because he's going to decorate that room. He's going to do the housekeeping and the cleanup in that room that you need him to do. 
He's going to refine that room. And now all of a sudden, it's not decorated like on one of those shows by Joanna Gaines. It's decorated by Jesus. He's going to take up residence, and he's going to take control. It's like what Paul says in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me, that he may dwell in your hearts. And when he does, your life begins to take the shape of him. You become to conform to his likeness. And that's what Paul's praying, that God, through your indwelling presence, that we may become more like you. And you have access to his indwelling presence through prayer, through prayer. But it's not just his incomparable power and his indwelling presence. We have access to his inconceivable love. This is the attribute he focuses most on in this passage. And you can understand why when you see it as the basis for all these things. Look at what he says. As Christ dwells in your heart through faith. Now at the end of verse 17. That you being rooted and grounded in love. And he mentions love multiple times that you would then have uh, the strength to comprehend. He describes all the facets of it in verse 19. To know what? The love of Christ. It's all about his love. And we have access into his inconceivable. That's how he describes it. Because he says there in verse uh, 19 that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Wait a minute. How does that happen? That I can know what's unknowable? Here's how he explains it. All right? You can't understand it completely, but you can experience it fully. You can't understand it completely, but you can experience it fully. He's praying that you would know the love of Christ. Well, what is this inconceivable love and, and what does it say about it? Well, it tells us that it's first and foremost in verse 17, immovable. That you would be rooted and grounded in love. That means that it's the stabilizing force in your life. This simple assurance that God loves you should stabilize everything else in your life. If you can know and believe God loves you, that means that you become rooted and grounded in that love, and there's no hurricane of life that's going to tip you over. There's no hurricane of life that's going to uproot your life. Why? Because you are grounded and rooted in God's love. Rooted and grounded in love. It's immovable. But its love is not just immovable, it's immeasurable. He describes it in verse 18 uh, is that when he says that you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints. And then watch this. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. As he describes it there, he basically says it extends in every direction beyond what you could see or imagine. It is, in fact, immeasurable. You know, uh, in, in comment on this passage, the famous uh, preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon referred to this as heavenly geometry. Now, I'm not trying to cause a flashback or make you have a moment here, okay, where, of, of trepidation. But when you think about geometry, it's trying to wrap your mind around all the dimensions of a shape, right? How does this work? And that's what he's describing here. Well, think about the breadth of God's love. How far does God's love reach? Friend, the Bible tells us that there's no, the arm of the Lord is not so short that he can't save anyone. There's no one outside the reach of God's love. God loves everyone. You can't uh, be too bad of a sinner or too good of a person to be outside the reach of God's love. You need God's love, and God's love can reach to you. It's the breadth of God's love. But it's not just the breadth, it's the length of God's love. How long is God's love? It stretches from eternity past in love he predestined us. It stretches from all of eternity past to all of eternity future. We'll be with God and abide in his love forever with him. So it's not the breadth and the length. 
It also then speaks of the height and the depth. The Bible says in Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for all those who fear him. Oh, listen, God's love extends to the heavens, the highest, glorious, most glorious thought you could imagine. God's love exceeds that for you. And down, right down to the, the depths of our soul and our being and our everyday life, from heaven down to earth, his love is for us. You say, well, if I need to be reminded of God's love, can you be reminded this way? The breadth and the length and the height and the depth is all epitomized in the cross. God demonstrated his love for us in that this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says in 1 John, it's not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the satisfying atonement for our sin. God loves you. His love is immovable. It's immeasurable. In verse 19, it says it's incomprehensible. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, you can't wrap your mind fully around it. But he also says that it's inescapable. You know, if God's love extends all of those places, there's nowhere it can't reach you. And there's nothing that can separate you from it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers or height or depth or any other created thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's inescapable, friend. It will pursue you and hound you and dog you until you turn around and receive the embrace of God in Jesus Christ. For this is the love of God. And in prayer, we have access to God's inconceivable love. His incomparable power, His indwelling presence, His inconceivable love, so that what? The end of verse 19, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see there His attributes? He says, whatever I am and whatever I have is now available to you through prayer. There's a third and final truth. Not only when we talk to God, do we have access to these things? Do we, are we talking to a God who listens to us? And not only when we pray, we're talking to a God who listens to us, we're trusting a God who loves us. When we pray, we're actually thanking the God who leads us. We're thanking the God who leads us. You know, the final two verses of this passage, it actually um, are the most familiar to us. We oftentimes incorporate them or include them maybe in a prayer that we would pray for other people. You know, down to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. And that's right. That's good. That's, that's how we should use this prayer. But I want you to understand the, what Paul's doing here. Because Paul's just prayed what we have as verse 14 through 19. And then in verse 20 and 21, it's, it's kind of a benediction. It's a conclusion. And what you see in verse 20 and 21 is Paul begins to operate in life. He begins to move forward in life with the assurance of answered prayer. The prayers I just prayed, that you may be filled, that you may be strengthened, that you may be able to comprehend, all of these prayers that he's prayed, he now says, now begin to live as though they have already been answered. That's how you begin to operate. Put feet on those prayers and begin to live that way. So here's what you're doing. You're thanking the God who now leads you. And verse 20 and 21 is really this, this celebration of praise. Paul begins to celebrate and praise uh, God who can and will answer our prayers. What does answered prayer actually show us? And how do we live in light of answered prayer? Well, first thing answered prayer does is it, it tells us, it demonstrates God's infinite ability. It demonstrates God's infinite ability. Look at verse 20. Now to him, 
Notice that phrase because it directs our prayers to him and also our praise to him. Now to him who is able. Some of you just needed to hear that today. God is able. You hear that? God is able. There's nothing impossible for God. Now to him who is able, watch this, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Holy cow. Did you hear all the superlatives he just stacked up together again right here? Not just to him who can do abundantly, to him who can do more abundantly, but him who can do far more abundantly than all we ask or even imagine. Listen, answered prayer demonstrates God's infinite ability. There's nothing he can't do and that he can't do with all the fullness of him behind it. God can do anything. God can do everything. You may say, well, if God can do anything and he wants to do everything, why doesn't he answer my prayers? Well, friend, answered prayer demonstrates his ability in a way that's always in his timing. And you have to trust. God, I'm trusting the God who loves me. Therefore, I'll begin to thank the God who leads me. I'm going to live with the trust and confidence that you're going to hear that prayer. You're going to answer it according to your time and according to your will. So if you feel like maybe even you're here today and you're thinking, you know, what should I do? Renew that prayer. Continue to pray that prayer, those prayers that you've been praying. Because the Bible says that you can maybe use an acronym like this, PUSH. You ever heard the PUSH prayer? Pray until something happens. Just keep praying because God assures us that he will answer prayer. Because God's answered prayer is going to demonstrate his infinite ability. But this brings us to the final point. And this is really the, the ultimate point. The answered prayer displays God's infinite glory. You see, it doesn't just show what God can do. It gives him and directs the praise and honor to him. You see, in verse 20 there, he's prayed to him. He's praying and giving now him praise to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. God hasn't put you on the sideline. Do you realize when you pray that God doesn't answer outside of you, he answers through you? He wants to include you in his response. But then watch this in verse 21. To him. Repeats that same phrase. To him be the glory. He's the one who's going to get the honor when he's the one who answers the prayer. Not when we accomplish it. Not when we do it. To him be the glory. And this phrase is important. In the church. Freaking, I tell you, even in this season of transition, it's God's glory we're after. We're praying for God to work in the life of our church. We're praying for God to move in our midst. There's not going to be some one individual or group of individuals or council or team or anybody else who's going to be the one that gets God's credit or glory. We want God to be the one who works to where he gets the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, through all time. Listen, God answers prayers in a way that is for our good, but always for our glory. And you can trust him to lead you forward as you make steps in your life. We can trust him to lead us forward as we take steps as a church. God, we're praying to you. When we pray, we're talking to the God who listens to us. We're talking and trusting the God who loves us. And we can begin praying, thanking the God who will lead us. Would you bow with me?